When the New Orleans-born historian Gwendolyn Midlow-Hall passed at the age of 93 on August 29, 2022, she left behind a legacy of books and databases that restored historical identity and agency to the enslaved people of Louisiana. We salute her memory today by replaying this archival hip-deep episode that featured her in 2005. Hello, Georges Collinet with you on Afropop Worldwide from PRX. Today, the fertile crescent of music, Saint-Domingue, Cuba, and New Orleans. We'll talk to Gwendolyn Midlow-Hall, author of Africans in Colonial Louisiana. And with me today is our old pal, author of Cuba and its music. From the first drums to the mambo, Mr. or shall I say, Monsieur Ned Sublet. Hello, Georges. It's so good to be Afro-popping again with you. That's for sure. And today we're going to have big fun looking at musical links among Louisiana, Cuba, and Saint-Domingue. And what you ask is Saint-Domingue? Better known as Haiti. Before 1804, when it was a French colony, it was called Saint-Domingue. But after the Haitian Revolution, it became the Republic of Haiti. And of course, we have no recordings from back then. So we don't really know what the music of those days sounded like. So for our sound today, we're going to have to work backward, using modern recreations and performances by traditional artists. But that's what I like about radio. You get to use your imagination. I think a good place to start is with the drums of voodoo, the Daomean-derived religion that established itself in Saint-Domingue and was a powerful force that pushed the Haitian Revolution forward. Well, how about a little song for Legba, the guardian of the crossroads, the trickster? Legba. Azunke parin legba, hey, hey. Azunke, azunke parin legba, hey. Parin legba, me la jan kase washo. Azunke Hey, 
Singing for Legba on Afropop Worldwide's Hip Deep. Today, the fertile crescent of music. Saint-Domingue, Cuba, and Louisiana. Georges Collinet. And Ned Sublet with you. On Afropop Worldwide from PRX. Now, Ned, we just heard some traditional music from Haiti. Have you got an old recording from Cuba? Have I got an old recording from Cuba? Yeah, that's posed by question. A little later in the show, I have a great folkloric recording for you of African music in Cuba. But right now... I want to play you a hundred-year-old Cuban pop tune, a danzón recorded in 1909. It's called El Automóvil, the automobile. Well, here, let me spray some new car smell. Let's ride. <laughs> Thank you. 
Recorded March 15, 1924 in New Orleans, that's Johnny Dudroit with the Wheel Tires composition Panama. And before that, Orquesta Enrique Peña with El Automóvil. Louisiana crossed paths throughout the 19th century and into the 20th. And before that, the Haitian Revolution transformed both Cuba and Louisiana. But there was already a well-established Afro-Louisianan culture from the earliest days of the French in Louisiana. Definitely. And that brings us to our special guest today, Dr. Gwendolyn Midlow Hall, a pioneer Louisiana historian. Dr. Hall went around Louisiana, systematically studying old documents, learning who the Africans of Louisiana were and where they came from. She revolutionized our knowledge of the subject and wrote a very important book, Africans in Colonial Louisiana. She compiled a database of the identities of some 100,000 enslaved Louisianans, and she's finished a new book called Slavery and African Ethnicities in the Americas. And if you want to find out more about it, go to our website, afropop.org, where we've posted a link to Dr. Gwendolyn Midlow-Hall's database as well as to her books. Dr. Hall was elected an elder of the African Heritage Studies Society in 1997. But back in the day, when she was a child attending the New Orleans public schools, it was still the days of Jim Crow, and historians tended not to consider black people part of history. When I was in public school, the teachers spent about half their time on pronouncing racist diatribes, and that was called education. And the main theme was that blacks were all stupid and uneducated and violent and dangerous, and that the only way to keep order and preserve the white race was to maintain very severe repression of blacks. I started studying history at Newcomb and Tulane, and I was getting racist history there too, a bit more sophisticated, but not a whole lot different, to the point where I just got out of the field. And I came back in Latin American history about 15 years later. And the impression I had was that it was okay to be critical of Latin America, but not of the United States. And so I avoided U.S. history and studied Latin American history. Then, of course, I had mastered the two languages necessary for colonial U.S. history, French and Spanish. And I kind of snuck back into U.S. history via the Caribbean and Louisiana. Part of the racist historiography was a state of denial that slaves even existed in colonial Louisiana, which was very interesting. Even the French historians wrote administrative histories of Louisiana and didn't even mention slaves or slavery. There's one that's four volumes. I think my favorite story is that when I first started studying documents in Louisiana, I went into the Point Coupe courthouse And the clerk of court came up and asked me what I wanted rather protectively. And I told him I was studying slavery in 18th century Point Coupe. And he assured me that slavery did not exist in 18th century Point Coupe. Of course, I knew better than that, but he was so sure he went to get a 1745 census to show me that there were no slaves. And he brought the census and the vast majority of the population were slaves. And he didn't realize it until he looked at it and he was shocked. Very few people in these courthouses knew the value of the documents they had. 
And, you know, I would go in with a couple of researchers and say, we want to see the old documents. And they said, oh, you can't read that, that's in French. Or you can't read it, it's in Spanish. I said, well, we do read the languages. And so then they would very reluctantly let us look at them. In order to explain the importance of the African contribution to Louisiana culture, the first thing you got to understand is that France actually didn't do that much in the way of colonizing Louisiana. In a way, the Frenchness of Louisiana has been somewhat overstated. Many of the French speakers who came to Louisiana came not from France, but from Canada or the Caribbean. I think that more than a direct colonial heritage, there was an ideology of Frenchness in Louisiana, which expressed itself through the use of the French language. France only actively tried to colonize Louisiana for a short period of time between about 1717 and 1731 and many of their colonists were forced to go to Louisiana, which had a terrible reputation in France. It was like being sent to Siberia. Well, actually, prisoners in France rioted to keep from being sent to Louisiana. The French held on to the colony more or less passively until they could palm it off on the Spanish in the 1760s. So really, French colonists were only coming in for about 14 years. Here's how Dr. Hall explained it. The French colonization of Louisiana was extremely thin and not very effective and very insecure. There was a serious attempt to bring French colonists over in the early 1720s. I'd say from about 1717 on, they brought French colonists. A lot of them, though, were forced laborers or army deserters. In other words, it was sort of like Australia. It was kind of a criminal colonization. Not that these people were necessarily criminals, but by French law they were, you know, like salt smugglers. And uh, they brought women who misbehaved sexually. And these people didn't function very well in Louisiana. And the people who needed labor ended up by crying for Africans, you know, and saying, disparaging the French workers saying that they were just non-functional. So the colonization of Louisiana relied very, very heavily on Africans, including African knowledge of rice cultivation, indigo cultivation, navigation, waterways, shipping, construction, so that the technology came heavily from Africa. And they went out of their way to get slaves who knew how to do this cultivation because the French surely didn't know. And if they did, they wouldn't do it anyway. The first ship that was sent to collect slaves in Africa, first two ships, the captains were instructed to be sure to buy slaves who knew how to cultivate rice and barrels of rice seeds for cultivation. So there was this very conscious decision to do this. And indigo was not produced here until Africans had arrived. And of course, indigo was widely produced in the regions where most of the slaves were brought from. Which is to say that the white population of early French Louisiana was heavily salted with crooks and whores who were worthless at farming. So it was the Africans' agricultural know-how that saved the colony. And started Louisiana eating its basic food to this day, rice. So where in Africa did these African Louisianans come from? The French documentation on the slave trade to Louisiana is very, very unusually complete. So that they give details about where the ship went, which ports and how many slaves they collected, and how many slaves they landed live in Louisiana. And so we know pretty precisely that two-thirds of the slaves 
during the French slave trade were brought directly from Senegal. We know that those who were collected near the coast were mainly Wolofs, and those who were brought from the interior were mainly Bambara. It's better to say Bamana, but anyway, that's a long story I don't need to explain. But the Bamana were mainly males, and the Wolof were heavily females, so that the basic population which was born in Louisiana probably had more likely to have Wolof mothers and substantial numbers of Bamana fathers. In Africans in Colonial Louisiana, Dr. Hall tells us that there were some 5,951 Africans brought to Louisiana on 23 slave ships during the French slave trade. Of those people, 3,909, just about two-thirds, came to Louisiana from the Senegal concession. 1,748 came from Ouida, which became part of the Kingdom of Dalmay. And there was one ship from Cabinda in northern Angola with 294 souls on board. Now, they didn't have so many Senegambians in Cuba, right? This is really interesting. The French were importing slaves to Louisiana right exactly at the time when the Segu uprising in West Africa was throwing a lot of Bambara captives on the market. But two centuries earlier, just as the first slave shipment was about to be sent to Cuba, Wolofs and Bambaras were specifically excluded by Spain from being brought to its territories. Because? Because the first slave uprising in the New World had just happened, in Spanish Santo Domingo in 1522, and many of the rebels were Wolofs. King Carlos of Spain responded with a royal order that prohibited bringing to the Spanish West Indies Wolofs or, quote, any others raised with Moors, although they be of the race of Guinea Negroes, close quote. In other words, no slaves from Islamized areas of Africa were to be brought to the Spanish colonies, so they didn't take large numbers of Senegambians to Cuba. Instead, they brought Congos, whom they bought from the Portuguese. So does this play out in the music? I think it does. Of course, we don't have much direct documentation about music. I asked Dr. Hall what she knew about it. I've seen much less about music than what we would want. <laughs> Just a few descriptions of dances and instruments and stuff like that in the documents, but not a lot. There's not much information about music. <laughs> But our ears can tell us things. I think that you can hear a lot of elements of the music of the Senegambians in Louisiana, and really in all of African-American music, especially because New Orleans was such an important town for spreading music. And you don't hear those elements in the music of Cuba, which is quite a different music. The early Afro-Louisianans came from a griot culture, whose instruments were fiddle and something very much like a banjo. The fiddle and the banjo, the classic African-American instruments of slavery days. Meanwhile, the Cubans didn't have that fiddling tradition that the Americans had, and the banjo was unknown in Cuba, except as an American import. The Senegambians' music had been Arabized through contact with Islam, so they had those melismas, those wavy sliding notes, and rhythmically they had a kind of loping swing to much of their music. None of this is in Cuban music. I think that elements of this must have been very important in determining the growth of American music. Well, one thing you know, if there was a coherent Afro-Louisianan culture, it had music.
think that in their differences, the musical styles of the southern U.S. and of Cuba reflect the differences of the two great musical regions of black Africa, the northern semi-arid grassland below the Sahara and the forested south. By the way, if you go to our Snazaruni website, you'll find the complete transcript of Ned Sublet's interview with Gwendolyn Midlow-Hall and Ned's pictures of the Tumba Francesa in Santiago de Cuba in action at afropop.org. More to come, so don't go away. I'm Georges Collinet, and you're listening to Afropop Worldwide from PRX. Now, we've been talking about the Senegambians in Louisiana, but of course, Congo people were an important part of Louisiana too, right? Certainly they were, but in the Spanish period. Now, Ned, remind me, when did the Spanish have Louisiana? In 1762. As part of the settlement at the end of the Seven Years' War, France gave Louisiana to Spain. And they did it secretly, without informing their own colonists. They didn't tell the French colonists that they were about to become Spanish subjects? You're kidding. Nope. France was completely unconcerned with the fate of its Louisiana colonists. (laughs) And King Louis XV was glad to be rid of the place, which had no precious metals and produced no valuable exports. The colonists found out about the deal 18 months after the fact in 1764. Man, they must not have been happy campers to find out they were going to drink Spanish wine and hear castanets. Can you imagine? Oof. They drove out the first Spanish governor who came with insufficient troops. So Spain didn't take definitive military possession of Louisiana until 1769. And Spain held on to Louisiana for almost 34 years after that. But what years they were. Oh, yes. This was the age of revolution, the period of the American, French, and Haitian revolutions. A turning point in history. People were just getting into playing the piano. Trumpets didn't even have valves yet. The English colonists in the New World let the cities more or less take care of themselves. But all over the hemisphere, the Spanish concentrated on building strong, centrally directed, defensible cities. That's what they did with New Orleans. While revolution was raging elsewhere, the Spanish made New Orleans into a city and into the important port it was situated to be. They made Louisiana an administrative department of Havana and gave New Orleans a town government. Their word for it was Cabildo. And I believe at that time, New Orleans only consisted of what today we call the French Quarter. And it burned down twice. Once in 1788 and again in 1794. The Spanish rebuilt it according to Spanish building code so that the French Quarter, which so captivated 19th century visitors to New Orleans, should really be called the Spanish Quarter. The Spanish built up the levee, lit the streets at night, collected taxes, and tried to deal with the fact that they had a Spanish-speaking government over a French-speaking town. At this point, New Orleans had fewer than 10,000 people. Meanwhile, Havana was 200 years older than New Orleans, and it was bigger than New York, Philadelphia, or any other English-speaking American city. 
According to one contemporary account in Havana, there were 50 dances going on every night. Wow. By then, the maritime route between New Orleans and Havana was well established, and that would be important for musical communication well into the 20th century between those two Gulf of Mexico ports. In the mid-19th century, it was easier to get from Havana to New Orleans than to get from Havana in the west part of Cuba to Santiago de Cuba in the east. That was a 14-day trip overland. One thing the Spanish did everywhere they went, they brought their military bands. Wind players and drummers came to Louisiana where they moonlighted playing dances. This was just as military bands were starting to become something we would recognize today. But as the military bands developed their instrumentation, dance orchestras grew up all over the place because the military band members moonlighted. And municipal bands formed in every town in Cuba and every town in Puerto Rico. In Louisiana, where the French had little desire to be in the military themselves, free people of color were prominent in the ranks of militia. That's one reason the class of free people of color was allowed to exist, and you can be sure they were playing wind instruments. And drums. And drums. Now, at the same time that Spain took over Louisiana, they threw open the gates to slave importers who brought in lots of Africans. Here's what Gwendolyn Midlow Hall had to say. As the U.S. War of Independence was coming to a close, Spain opened the slave trade to any friendly power with no customs charged for slaves. And they didn't even keep very careful records because they didn't have any money to collect. So. In the Spanish period, there's a continuous migration from the Bight of Benin, which is where you would get voodoo from. And there's a continuous migration from Greater Senegambia, but there's an increased migration from the Congo, and especially around New Orleans and then St. Charles Parish, it's heavily Congo. So the Spanish period is when we start to see both military bands and a heavy Congo influence in New Orleans. That's right. The Congos were, of course, the common factor in the slave trade all across the hemisphere. They were the base layer of Afro-Cuban culture, and they were very important in Haiti. Congo culture is something Haiti, Cuba, and Louisiana have in common. The Haitian Revolution was extremely complicated. At one point in 1794, it was a six-sided war, and it was basically over in 1801. At that point, it was officially still a French colony, with Toussaint Louverture in charge. But by then, Napoleon was in power in France, and he decided to turn Haiti back into a wealthy, slave-powered agricultural colony. He thought he'd need Louisiana as a supply base for it, so he pressured Spain to give Louisiana back to France in 1801. But he didn't take possession of it right away. Instead, Napoleon sent his brother-in-law, General Leclerc, across the ocean with tens of thousands of troops in a huge transatlantic invasion to subdue the Haitians and retake Saint-Domingue. General Leclerc's instructions were to proceed on to Louisiana afterward. They thought it would be a cakewalk. <laughs> Where have I heard that before? <laughs> Planters who had left Saint-Domingue came back when the French troops invaded, thinking they would repossess their plantations and get their slaves back. Guess what? The French were driven out of Haiti with tens of thousands dead and never got to Louisiana. By 1803, it had turned into a war of annihilation, which the French lost, and maybe 30,000 refugees fled to eastern Cuba. The slave masters, who were both whites and free people of color, along with their slaves. There were quite a few slave-owning people of color in Saint-Domingue. They owned about 30% of the slaves. 
The arrival of the refugees was a very important moment for Cuba's development. They brought advanced agricultural technology and business skills. And, more important for our story, they established an Afro-Franco-Cuban culture. Napoleon abandoned his plans in the New World and sold the massive Louisiana Territory to the United States. The Louisiana Purchase! Spain transferred Louisiana back to France about three weeks before Napoleon's men handed it over to Thomas Jefferson's men. The Republic of Haiti came into being January 1st, 1804, just two days after the United States took possession of Louisiana. The Domingans transformed the music of Eastern Cuba, both the music of the masters and the music of the slaves. Over time, some of their flavor traveled westward to the rest of the island. The black Haitians in Cuba called their music and dance tumba, and since they were franceses, Frenchmen, it became the tumba francesa. Now, Ned, why were they called franceses instead of Haitianos, Haitians? Well, for one thing, when they got to Cuba in 1803, Haiti didn't yet exist as such. It was still Saint-Domingue, and in theory still belonged to France. These Black Domingans mutual aid organizations, which celebrated regularly with music and dance, probably got started up in the hills, in the coffee plantations that the Domingans established in eastern Cuba. Today, there are three extant Tumba Francesa groups in Cuba. They dress in costumes that resemble French salon wear of the 18th century, and they dance to a purely African music of drums and voices. And I tell you, a visit to one of those groups is really something. We visited all three of them on one of our Afropop Worldwide visits to Cuba. Here's a recording we made of the Tumba Francesa of Santiago de Cuba. From Santiago de Cuba, the music of the Tumba Francesa. 
Josh Collinet with you on Afropop Worldwide from PRX. So, Ned, how did the people from Saint-Domingue, or as we call it today, Haiti, wind up in Louisiana? Most of them came over not from Saint-Domingue, but from Cuba. And that was in uh, 1809, right? Exactly. In 1809 and 1810. A number of the Saint-Domingan refugees who were in eastern Cuba found themselves suddenly persona non grata in Cuba and had to get out, thus going into exile for the second time in seven years. Our special guest today, Dr. Gwendolyn Midlow-Hall, explained it like this. Napoleon invaded Spain and put his brother in as a king of Spain. And there was such a reaction against this in Cuba that they expelled the Haitians. And so these were about 10,000 people. About a third of them were free people of color who owned slaves. Another third were so-called white Creoles of Haiti who also owned slaves, and the other third were the slaves owned by either group. And these people were expelled between 1809 and 1810. They showed up in New Orleans in a whole bunch of shipments so that there was a sudden introduction of Haitians into New Orleans, and this doubled the free-colored population in New Orleans so that about half the free-coloreds were Haitians. The importation of slaves into the United States was prohibited as of 1808. So in 1809, it was no longer legal for these Dominican slave owners to bring in their slaves to Louisiana. But because they had no other property left, the Dominican slave masters were allowed to keep their slaves by a special act of Congress. So if these black Dominicans from Cuba were brought in as slaves by a special loophole after the door had slammed shut on slave importation... These people would have been the last slaves imported into the United States legally. They were. A lot of New Orleanians, black and white, are descended from those 1809-1810 families. Jelly Roll Morton was Haitian descended on both sides. Fats Domino is Haitian descended. Now this is where it gets frustrating for us musicologists. The Haitians came to New Orleans from Cuba. As you can hear from the Tumba Francesa, they had something musical in Cuba, and some of it must have come with them to Louisiana. Though many of the people of color who came to Louisiana were women, so they may not have been drummers. In Louisiana, the refugees put their thing on top of an already well-developed Afro-Louisianan identity. But unlike in Cuba, where the Tumba Francesa survives to this day, in Louisiana there's no direct trace of this music. The one place in the United States where black people were allowed to play African-style drums in public was at Congo Square in New Orleans. The jams at Congo Square went on for a while, even after the Civil War, but of course we have no recordings. By the time recordings of New Orleans musicians were being made, the hand-drumming tradition was long since gone. But you do have a hand-drumming tradition in New Orleans. Yes, the tambourines of the Mardi Gras Indians, which date back at least to the 1880s. But by then, we're already more than 70 years removed from the Saint-Domingue exodus into New Orleans, and those were busy years.
you would hear something at Congo Square that sounded like this Daomean group recorded in Cuba in 
But one thing we do know, the maritime contact between Western Cuba and New Orleans was constant for the whole 19th century. The people in Cuba who in the 1880s cultivated the music called rumba worked on the docks in the ports of Havana and Matanzas, loading and unloading those boats that went back and forth to New Orleans. They were constantly in contact with people going back and forth between the two places. There were stowaways in both directions. And of course, there were black sailors. Ned, what did they dance in Havana in uh, the 19th century? They danced their own evolving Afro-Cuban style of a dance known all over Europe, from Russia to the British Isles, and in many parts of the New World, the Contradanza. dances in Cuba, many of the musicians were black, and the black musicians especially put their own rhythmic spin to the contradanza. When the San Domingans came en masse to eastern Cuba with their own black musicians, they brought their own way of playing it, apparently favoring that rhythm of ch-ch-ch-ch-ch. In Cuba, the contradanza became the danza and then the danzón. In one form or another, it ruled for well over a century. Which brings us to Luis Moro Gottschalk, the first American piano virtuoso a white New Orleanian of Dominican descent, a major American composer much overlooked today, though in the days of silent films, his works were quite popular for movie piano accompanists. Gottschalk was born in 1829, He grew up within earshot of Congo Square, traveled all over the hemisphere, and played for President and Mrs. Lincoln and for Queen Isabella of Spain. We know a lot about his life, and he left us an autobiography, but we don't know how he actually sounded when he played. In his autobiography, Gottschalk talked of having a memory of his childhood. Georges, would you do the honors? Give me a beat. Saint Domingo 
or seem to speak to my imagination by recalling to me the bloody episodes of the insurrection so closely associated with my childhood memories. When very young, I was never tired of hearing my grandmother relate the terrible strife which our family, like all the rest of the colonists, had to sustain at this epoch. I again found myself before the large fireplace of our dwelling on the street des ramparts at New Orleans, where in the evening, squatting on the matting, the Negroes, myself, and the children of the house formed a circle around my grandmother and listened by the trembling fire on the hearth, under the coals of which Sally, the old negress, baked her sweet potatoes to the recital of this terrible Negro insurrection. It was the same old Sally who, while listening all the time, spoke in a low voice to a portrait of Napoleon hung above the fireplace and which she obstinately believed was bewitched because it seemed to look at her in every corner of the room, wherever she might be. We cast fearful glances under the old bed and drew closer together by creeping the one between the other while my grandmother continued. Sometimes Sally interrupted the narrative of my grandmother to exercise a zombie of which she said she felt the impure breath on her face. We narrowed our circle, shivering with fright, around my grandmother, who after crossing herself and scolding Sally, took up her story where she had left off. Gottschalk was the first composer to use maracas, guiro, and African drums in front of a concert orchestra. He traveled to Puerto Rico and Martinique and spent a very important year in Cuba, where he befriended the greatest Cuban musicians of the day. The Cuban composer Manuel Saumel taught him how to play contradances in the Cuban style. Gottschalk visited Santiago in 1854 for carnival and saw the Tumba Francesa perform, and six years later, he brought them from Santiago de Cuba to Havana. A very long trip that was in 1860. To play in front of an orchestra of hundreds that included military bands, multiple pianos, and a visiting Italian opera company. The year after that, he came back to Havana and gave a concert with 40 pianos performing simultaneously. He called them monster concerts. Let's listen now to one of Gottschalk's most popular works, Ojos Criollos, subtitled Danse Cubaine, Cuban Dance, published in New Orleans in 1859 on the eve of the Civil War. There are passages in this piece that sound very much like ragtime, but the ragtime fad was still 40 years away.
Realize a Cuban dance music composed by the most famous American musician of the 19th century, New Orleans' own Louis Moreau Gottschalk. I'd like to thank my colleagues at the Stone Center for Latin American Studies at Tulane University, where I was a Tulane Rockefeller Humanities Fellow. And very special thanks to Dr. Gwendolyn Midlow Hall. Her entire interview and pictures of the Tumba Francesa of Santiago de Cuba in action are available on our website, afropop.org. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at AfropopWW. Funding for Afropop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art. And from PRX affiliate stations around the U.S. And thank you for supporting your public radio station. My Afropop partner is Sean Baldo. Sean produces our program for World Music Productions, research and production for this program by Net Sublet. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast, including radio programs and our Planet Afropop series. Looking ahead, set your sights on Camp Afropop. Three days of musical magic featuring Natu Kamara, Bakiti Kumalo, Pedrito Martinez, Yakuba Sisoko, Samba Mapangala, and Jake Blunt. Join me and the Afropop team for interactive workshops, jam sessions, and late-night dance parties at the 100-acre Full Moon Resort in the Catskill Hills, May 28 to the 31st, 2024. Visit campafropop.org for details. That's campafropop.org. Our chief audio engineer is Michael Jones. Banning Air and Savion Biggs edit our website, afropop.org. Our director of development is Mukwe Wabeisi Yolwe. Our director of new media is Savion Biggs. And I'm Georges Collinet. Oh,